And we're off. <laughs> well, let this be the first for the beginning of an experiment. Where I'm trying to get my feet wet in the world of interviewing. Welcome, Dad. Thank you. So, um, let's just start with what are you, uh, what kind of projects are you working on right now? Like with in work or in life? Well, in life I'm working on my golf game. Yeah, you have been. What like suddenly made you want to step your game up? I say suddenly because the amount you've been practicing kind of went up pretty quickly. Well, the desire was there, so it's not a sudden desire, but the action was in the last month or two. Mm -hmm. And what spurred the action? I just wanted to get back to where I was before I had you. <laughs> how, and how were you when, before you had me? A pretty good shirt game. Mm -hmm. pretty, uh, pretty tough to deal with. Where did you like to play? Oh, at well, that time wherever my buddies were playing who were you playing with uh tom mcneil fred cook mark sale they were all local at the time yes and every once in a while you uh you get a guest appearance from doug stein or um mm -hmm. mark shea um john tan yeah um, other friends but I know. the main foursome yeah. was uh sale cook McNeil and Cunningham. Mm -hmm. In fact, I uh, met your mother on uh, in the evening after the four of us had played golf at Rancho Solano. Oh boy! And um, we had done quite a bit of drinking that day. I wasn't driving. <laughs> and, uh, I actually had a, I had even though my game was pretty good back then. I had a five putt on a hole. Ooh. That, did that mess up your uh, psyche, your mental no, game at all? No, no. It was a super windy. Rancho Solano is a windy course. It was oh, super no. windy. To, to the point where it was messing up your putting? Yeah, we were just all intimidated. I actually got on the green in two in regulation. <laughs> oh, wow. And five-putted for a seven. Yeah, it was pretty uh, pretty funny. Nice. Yep. Do you miss playing with that group? Yeah. I like playing with those guys. But we've um, kind of all gone our separate ways. I'm the only one who still lives in Sacramento. Um, McNeil lives in the Bay Area, and Fred lives in Tahoe, and Seo lives in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. So uh, it'll, you know, we, we get together once in a while, but it's instead of uh, once a month, it's more like about once a year. And so it is, right? Like, that's just how it ends up happening. As you get older and people start doing their own thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, when it comes to hanging out with your buddies, playing sports, that kind of thing. Um, if you find yourself in a situation, whatever sport it is, golf or basketball in my case, uh, you find a group of people you like playing with and you're enjoying it, um, you should appreciate it uh, and cherish it while it's there because um, people move, um, people get injured, we grow up, um, mm -hmm. other things happen in our lives, and um, the choice that... Uh, people make to come together to compete or, you know, have fun mm -hmm. in sports is, is an, an ephemeral one. Mm. Yeah. Right on. No, I, I, um, 
I, I'm glad that you had that time with him. Yeah. Yeah. Good times. So do you mind digging into like starting with just like your early childhood, just so we can maybe do like a overview of maybe your youth, just to kind of have that down to your perspective of, or your current perspective of your like kind of upbringing a little bit. Like, what was your earliest memory? I've never asked you that before. Um, my earliest memory was uh, splitting my chin open, running with, <laughs> okay, a, running with a coconut, running with a coconut. <laughs> In Hawaii. Yeah, and I was probably about three years old, and I didn't uh, negotiate a uh, uh, like a three-step staircase or whatever you want to call it, step from the, the garage into the house, and I was running with this coconut in my arms and, um, I went down on my chin and my chin actually went down on the coconut and split open. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's the first thing I really remember. And you were at that point, were you an only child? How, what's your gap between your first, between Kenny you and was Kenny? probably about two when that happened. Oh, okay. Yeah. We lived at 3031 Manoa road. Mm -hmm. And, uh, is, and so that's in Manoa on Oahu. Yeah, on Oahu, yeah. And so what what comes to mind when you think of that period, like that early, maybe grade school? Well, three years old, I didn't I think I had maybe preschool. I think the first thing that I actually really remember was when we moved to that house and I was probably about two or so, mm -hmm. my mom made me memorize our phone number. Oh yeah, yeah. So back then it was a six digit number, not a seven digit number. And so she made me memorize it. And so three, six, two, five, six, one is embedded in my mind because six um, digits. Wow. Yeah. Three, six, two, five, six, one. That was our phone number when we lived at 3031 Manoa road. Okay. And I remember you telling me that pretty early on you weren't able to sleep through the night and you started watching movies. Well, that's much later. Was that more closer to high school or was that in grade school? Yeah, middle school. Middle okay. School, grade school. All right. So what about um, grade school? What comes to mind when you think of grade school? Were you living at the same house through most of grade school? No, no. We, we lived in I, we lived at, uh, on Manoa Road until just before kindergarten. Mm -hmm. So until I was like uh, five. Mm -hmm. and, and so not a lot of school, maybe preschool mm -hmm. um, when we lived there. Where'd you go to elementary school? Cocoa Head Elementary. That's a different neighborhood. Um, we moved to... That's so funny. Hanamaulu Hana Street. Uh-huh. And how long were you guys at that house? 359 Hanamaulu Street. We lived there <laughs> for my... From kindergarten through the end of fifth grade. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you have any memories from Cocoa Head? I remember... There was, uh, I, I recall you mentioning uh, your first day of school didn't go so well for you. I think in elementary, there was like, you maybe got uh, some negative attention from some local kids. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, I came home from school and I told mom I was excited because I have a new name. <laughs> and yeah. Um, my new name was fucking Howley, which is a, 
uh, Hawaiian nickname for like honky, you know, white guy. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, yeah. So I was excited that that was my name and, uh, mom had to deal with that and, uh, figure out how to talk to her son without making him realize that it was a negative name. Oh yeah. You know, she loves telling that story. I've heard her tell you say that story a handful of times. Yep. Yeah. I'm sure it was it was a big part of her experience. How was that energy or sentiment for you growing up between you and Hawaiians? Like, how did you feel about them being frustrated? And what was your, like, kind of overall experience? I think I'm just like anybody. I just wanted to get along. I, I, I felt like an outsider, and I wanted to be I wanted to be an insider. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want to be, you know, when you're a kid, when you're growing up, you, you, you really don't want to um, be looked at as different. Mm-hmm. You want to be looked at as part of the group. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, like unless the way you're being looked at is different as being faster, or being able to jump higher, or, or uh, you know, being maybe being clever. Mm-hmm. Um, but otherwise, you know, you just want to kind of fit in. Mm-hmm. Do you, how do you feel now about you know what happened to the Hawaiians? Oh, I feel terrible. I felt terrible as soon as I figured out what had happened. They had been displaced and ripped off and mm-hmm. um, decimated by um, disease. And, um, you know, economically, uh, taken advantage of, um, Mm -hmm. and their culture, you know, stripped of some, you know, some of its best parts. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's a solution in your eyes? Uh, 200 years later? Yeah. Well, the solution is we all have to muddle through and, and, and deal with today. Get along. Well, to an extent, I mean, if I, I, there is always going to be room for some, um, some unpleasantness and, and there's winners and losers whenever there's change. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, those tough decisions are what, um, define our leaders. Mm. Mm -hmm. So making the most out of this or trying to move forward rather out of this from this less than desirable situation. Well, whenever there's been, um, theft of property mm-hmm. from a group of people uh, for without justice, mm-hmm. uh, then there is always the um, possibility that sometime down the road, um, some people may try to make reparations. And um, one person's idea of reparations uh, may not be the same as someone else's. Mm-hmm. You know, I think an interesting... Um, interesting situation to think about is uh what's going on in south africa right now where Mm. uh there were uh for a long time uh if you were if you weren't white you couldn't own land and so for Mm -hmm. hundreds of years you had uh the white people owning all the land and 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 non-white people working the land and when apartheid was brought uh, to an end at least legally there was still the uh the need to try to um bring about some um balance or some justice when it came to property ownership. And, and of of course, uh, there is another side to it from the standpoint of the folks who have always held the property and, you know, whose property is going to be taken away to make up for that. And how does that happen? And, um, there's winners and losers and, and folks feeling like injustice is happening to them. 
Yeah, I remember hearing like a, it was a headline, but like eighty percent of like a ton of privately held land by white folks was given back like suddenly by the like this current presidential regime like in the last couple of years. I don't know about those statistics, but um, I know that there there have been efforts to try to balance things out and you know what you know the reason why there's a uh there's a lot of griping going on is because the government's not paying for it they're just taking Mm. it from Mm -hmm. one group of people and giving it to another and Mm -hmm. um uh i think i feel strongly about a government's responsibility to um uh, pay just compensation to someone Mm -hmm. whose property rights have been taken by the government and well, that intersects with the type of law that your law firm practices, or at least one side of the firm, right? Sure. Property rights are important. And um, when when the government, in its infinite wisdom, decides to change or alter or reduce or diminish someone's property rights, mm-hmm. um, there's a, there are constitutional principles that come into play. And if you, you didn't have those constitutional principles, if people didn't have the peace of mind or the ability to have peace of mind to go, Hey, look, I'll be taken care of because the constitution says so. Uh, then you would have other social or economic ills that would come from, um, uncertainty and, Mm. and, uh, you know, worry about, uh, well, Hey, how do I know I'm going to still own this and that somebody isn't going to steal it from me? It's one thing, if uh, in the in the commercial jungle or the business jungle, there are winners and losers and um, uh, spoils of the victor and all that, okay. But when the government uses its resources to interfere with that dynamic, then um, society has to pay. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt in my mind mm-hmm. because of the imbalance of power. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. Um, what have you learned from and in being involved in cases that have to, that deal with that area of the law? I think that um, people get frustrated with uh, litigation choices or legal just legal tactics of the government, and and I I, yeah, I feel frustrated, but I know that um, those tactics and those decisions are made, being made by folks who have a different, who are involved in a different kind of an accountability than uh, people in the private sector. In the private sector, ultimately, there is going to be a bottom line. And if a company uh, makes stupid decisions or unfair, you know, make, gets overly aggressive in its its uh, legal uh, tactics, then uh, they can be uh, hit where it hurts, which is their pocketbook. And ultimately, mm. a company can uh, become bankrupt or their, it's, or its value can go down. So there's a, there's a consequence that the shareholders and, or the owners will feel when they're out there doing stupid stuff. But when the government is doing it, uh, it's not the same because the people who are making the decisions are not directly affected by the, uh, economic consequence of bad choices. Mm. And, you know, instead they're, they're, they're somehow or another, um, part of the, dynamic of of election and re-election and the mm-hmm. cycles that come with that and the appointments and all mm-hmm. that and so um, ultimate accountability for for bad choices of that type um, could be years down the road 
Mm-hmm. And so um, because that accountability isn't immediate um, or direct or personal, uh, you have some people who are in that position of power who uh, take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. You know, the things that people do when they think no one's watching um, are the things that scare me the most. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that's why even though I'm a bankruptcy lawyer, not a eminent domain lawyer, my, you know, I always know about the case of P- the people versus Decker, which is a case that um, government lawyers hate to have quoted to them and that uh, old eminent domain lawyers love to uh, bring up because in the people versus Decker, mm-hmm. the uh, higher duty of a government lawyer was uh, the thing that uh, made the difference in that case. And that was a case where uh, some people, uh, somebody, the property owner owned, uh, lived a hou- owned a house near an airport, and I think the dispute was over whether or not the um, the redirection of um, air, airliner tr- mm-hmm. airliner flights over mm-hmm. flights over their house was something that uh, was something that uh, uh, which, which caused a diminution in value. Well, of course, it caused a diminution in value, but was it the government's fault? And um, the the legal issue that uh, decided that. Uh, turned on when the government knew uh, about uh, about the overflights. And uh, in that case, the government lawyer concealed information from the property owner's lawyer and then took a position that was based on on not all of the information being in the hands of his opponent and got caught red-handed. And because of that, the, um, the government got penalized. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's this higher duty, and you know, and uh, you know that's where I think it, uh, the value of, of the courts being involved as a check, mm-hmm. and the actions taken by the government. You know, the government's the executive branch, and mm-hmm. you know, having uh, a um, a judicial branch to keep the government in check when the ballot box isn't um, doing it soon enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in those extreme cases, um, that's what they're there for. Mm-hmm. I want to segue back to this period that I've always been kind of fascinated by, and it's when you started watching movies in the middle of the night or watching TV. When did that start happening for you? When did I start watching TV? Like, when did you start staying up late and you couldn't sleep? And so you used to tell me how you would spend, like, the early, the the very late hours of the night with the TV. I would say that would have been starting in sixth grade. We moved to a new house that had an upstairs and my mom and dad would go to bed um, early and I would, I would go to bed, but then wake up and I couldn't sleep. And so I would go to be awake in bed and you just, yeah, I couldn't sleep. And I've always had, um, my mind's moving all the time, racing all the time. And so mm-hmm. uh, at, different, at different points in my life, I do different things to deal with that. And so I, I would go downstairs and watch TV, watch movies till dawn. What, uh, what kind of movies do you remember watching or doing? Now, this would have been in basically 1972 to 1979. So this is in the early and mid-70s. And... Um, you know, whatever was on TV then, which would have been a bunch of movies, film film noir, movies mm. from the 40s, the 30s, um, once in a while from the 50s. Um, you know, back then it was uh, whatever old rerun movies would be playing. Nothing new. I mean, Ben-Hur wouldn't be on or The Wizard of Oz or anything, you know, that was 
um, a big blockbuster. It was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, things like uh, maybe an old Hitchcock film or a Vincent mm-hmm. Price movie or something like that. And was your see to me growing up silent movies or like some of the early stuff feels almost felt almost unwatchable or like so different than you know color and then the wizard of oz and then you know the movies kind of started getting more evolved and more kind of like engaging or dynamic so well, can, did, did you mean, mind watching the old old well, stuff well it was a charlie chaplin film we all you always wanted to watch uh his really? movies because they were um uh so um entertaining and it was easy it was easy to watch a charlie Chop- chaplin film really some of the other ones maybe uh even some of the good ones even the buster keaton's and and um you know some of the others were maybe a little harder or longer to watch more slapstick or more um i don't know uh simpler stuff mm-hmm. but the mm-hmm. charlie chaplin films had uh feelings and emotions that you could um, see right away mm-hmm. and um uh you know the the music and the subtitles weren't that important. It was uh, what the people's faces were showing that um, that kept you interested in, mm-hmm. particularly Charlie Chaplin. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a cool insight. I didn't know that you had that perspective on him or those those movies at that time. It's cool. I'm wondering. Um, I know that you have a relationship with the genre of sci-fi in 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 novels or in writing. I'm wondering when did that start happening for you? Uh, sci-fi or fantasy? Yes. I have fantasy maybe. Um, probably sixth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade. Oh, wow. Uh, I think the first one, first book I read was the Hobbit. I think I read that in the summer before sixth grade. How'd you come across that? I don't know. I think it was just in a, um, like my dad had a bunch of books. Uh-huh. I think he, it was like he probably had some, you know, hardback, just amongst a bunch of other hardbacks, and it was probably the most um, appealing to a kid. You know, my dad had all these serious books. Like what? I don't know. Just you know, uh, World World War Two history. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and. Um, the loom of language and, uh-huh. um, I, I don't know, just, a uh, Lydia Bailey and some yeah. other historical like, novels. A lot less kid friendly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, Paul Robeson books and things like that. Okay. But, um, but when I, the Hobbit had, uh, you know, kind of a, um, a, uh, uh, the cover was, uh, kind of cartoony or, you know, colorful and, um, semi-representational. And so, uh, it was interesting. And then you look, you open it up and there were, um, maps and things and, uh, and maybe a couple of, um, sketches or drawings of, um, representations of goblins and dwarves and things like that. And so it was appealing to me as a kid, I guess I'm like, Hey, what's this? So I picked off the, the, Shelf and I read it that mm-hmm. summer before sixth grade, I think. I think and what was, what was that like for you? It was really well. It was really interesting. I liked the love the book, and then I found out that there was uh, a sequel to it, or it was the prequel to the Fellowship of the Ring. And so then I started reading the Fellowship of the Ring in sixth grade, and um, about a month into sixth grade, the uh, teacher announced. <laughs> 
that we were going to be reading this book called The Hobbit. <laughs> and I had already read it. Nice. And so then I was faced with this this moral dilemma <laughs> about whether or not I was going to let the teacher know I had already read the book. Yeah. And I decided not to tell her. <laughs> yeah. And um, <laughs> read it again a second time. Very. Uh, that just sounds like a very hard dilemma for a sixth grader to be handling. Yeah, I was pretty competitive, <laughs> I guess. And so um, uh, it was all fine, but... Uh, she was reading it to the class because it was, I guess, hard for her to get the kids to read it outside of class. Mm -hmm. And, um, at some point, I don't exactly remember how it all went down, but, um, during the, uh, interaction in, you know, where she was question and answering or the reading in class, I said something that revealed that I had read ahead. Mm -hmm. And so then, uh, I, I, I thought that I was caught, <laughs> you know, you know, imagine, you know, a teacher, uh, being frustrated because the kid had read something, it was reading something for a second time, and w or mm -hmm. was reading ahead. But um, I guess I had a guilty conscience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, guilty conscience. So it started with The Hobbit. And I then... read The Hobbit, um, and I read The Phantom Tollbooth by um, Roald Dahl. Yeah, I read that in sixth grade. Is that that's poetry, right? No, The Phantom Tollbooth was a novel. Roald Dahl, he wrote um, uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. That's right. Okay. And um, and the Phantom Tollbooth was another in in, in kind of in that vein. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so yeah, I, I read that in sixth grade. And I don't know what else I read in sixth grade, but then uh, when I moved on to seventh grade, I was in a homeroom. So I was I went to a new school, a private school, and and and. Um, my homeroom was turned out to also be my uh, English and social studies uh, class. And it was the first time I'd ever been in a school where you would have more than one teacher, you know, and instead of your homeroom teacher teaching you everything. And in this one, we had um, Mrs. Hickey and Miss Ho. Uh, there was two homerooms combined and because their social studies and English class were combined. And so I had what was known as Hickey Ho. And so I was, uh, my homeroom was okay. Hickey Ho and I had Hickey Ho for, for, for social studies and English. And they had a really cool thing where it was kind of like self-serve. They had these different book stations throughout this double classroom of different genres. They had mystery, they had science fiction, they had history, they had, um, whatever, just all these, you know, different, different genres. And then all you, you just needed to pick one and work through one throughout the year. And uh, because I like to read, I um, read, I, I decided, I, I, I saw that the fantasy section had stuff I had already been reading. So I thought, well, let me see what else is there. And I found mm. the sci science fiction section. So mm, I okay. worked through the science fiction section and that's where I read iRobot and uh, Isaac Asimov. I read um, Stranger in a Strange Land and um, uh, a, a series of um, of different science fiction books, um, you mm -hmm. know, Asimov and Ray Bradbury and mm -hmm. and stuff like that uh, in that class. What about those books captured you? I think I was interested in in probably escaping to another place, and mm. you know, I was living really? on an island and feeling, um, you know, kind of trapped. And I don't mm. know. I think I was just interested in what's the rest of the world look like even though the, the, it was a, you know, a fantasy world. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Just like, I liked the stories too. The writing was good. Mm -hmm. And I think that, um, 
whenever you get into these, uh, you know, adventure type stories, uh, there is always this uh, feeling of discovery, exploration, uh, and uh, and usually the good guys win. Mm-hmm. Did any of the kind of futurism uh, aspects to some of those books uh, appeal to you or interest you in any way? Yeah, I was curious about what um, was going to happen. So yeah, I, I read. I think I read. I also read the Planet of the Apes by Pierre Bouillet or Boo mm-hmm. Bouy and. Um, um, oh, I read um, Papillon. What's that? Papillon uh, was a book that became a movie uh, right around that time. It was about a fellow who uh, the the only person that uh, was confirmed to have escaped from Devil's Island. Mm-hmm. Devil's Island was a French penal colony in the Caribbean, and this fella um, got. Uh, got escaped and it was the story of how he got out and what his mm-hmm. life was like in the penal colony and, 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 um, you know, the, the, the relationships that he had with the other prisoners and the guards and, and, uh, some of the extreme, um, uh, things that he had to do in order to be able to actually get out. Mm. What was that like reading about those things? It was uh, well, well. The writing was really good, but mm-hmm. you know, there there was like one part that was um, that was uh, really, really kind of hard to accept, which was that uh, was when this guy talked about something called his plan, mm. and that was, his plan was a nickname for a uh, a moisture-proof container that he would put documents in that he cared about. And then because they were being searched all the time, oh. the plan was kept in his uh, rectum. Yeah. That's, and that was a bit of a that, that harsh was, imagery. As a seventh grader, that was something <laughs> that I was really like, what? <laughs> yeah. What's going on? Yeah. So that stuck with me. Yeah. Yeah. Not surprised. Everybody have... has a plan, you know. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. You hear that. Yeah. I have those moments of movies that stick out as a kid because you were pretty loose about – or fairly loose about at some point about or maybe i just kind of did my own thing but i would watch all sorts of movies and some of them i remember kind of stick burning images into my head somewhat early on that were that stuck with me as well so i can relate in that way um if we fast forward a little bit i'm wondering about what it was like when you finished high school and then what it was like to leave for college. You went to Santa Cruz your first year, right? Yep. And what was that experience like? Going leaving home? Yeah, what was leaving home like? I was ready to go. I I left um about a week after I graduated from high school. Oh wow, I didn't realize it was that fast. Yeah, and I left for um for the mainland, you know, I, we lived in Hawaii and, uh, money was tight and, um, I was afraid that I was going to have to stay behind and, and go to the university of Hawaii and kind of, uh, uh, ride herd over my, over my two little brothers who were getting in a bunch of trouble mm-hmm. and mom wanted me to stay and take care of them and keep, keep, Oh, track she of told them. you that. Yeah. She wanted me to stay and oh, wow. I wanted to go because I was needing some independence and, um, 
uh, wanting to explore and see what the world had to offer. And so uh, I had a chance to go to school in California, but um, in order to be able to make that work financially, I needed to work like three jobs that summer and wow. save money. So I uh, went straight to Reno and stayed with my grandma. Mm, grandma K. Yeah, my grandma K. And we, and uh, she helped me save money. Um, I, I worked and I would give her my paycheck every week and I'd give her my tips and the paycheck she put in the bank and the tips she put in this big, huge uh, silver loving cup um, <laughs> Uh, that was like some kind of golf trophy from grandpa's and uh-huh. we just keep throwing the tips in there all, all summer. And, mm-hmm. and you got to hang out with her, right? Well, yeah, I hung out with grandma. And, what, um, what was, what was hanging out with grandma Kay like just one-on-one? Um, so grandma Kay in the morning, she, uh, would be, you know, she'd get up before me, which is pretty hard. I'm <laughs> usually the first person up in the, in the house wherever yeah. I'm at, but she'd get up probably about, um, she must got up by about four or four thirty, and, <laughs> oh my and God. Um, she used to come. And well, so here's what would happen: is I, I would be upstairs, and I could hear the rustling going on in the kitchen, yeah. and I could smell the bacon and hear it sizzling, and hear the uh, her perfect um, electric skillet fried hash brown potatoes. Oh really? Uh, oh yeah, she had the best. She had the best, like uh, some old like uh, solid, you know. Uh, steel uh, uh, potato shredder huh. that was from her old um, restaurant that she had back in the fifties. Oh, she. And, oh, that's right. Yeah. She had a restaurant. And so she still had that thing. It was great. I wonder where that is today. But um, she would she would be making breakfast and and uh, and then she would come up and I would kind of just pretend to be asleep. I'd be already awakened. But she'd come up and quote unquote wake me up and she'd you know shake me and she'd say. What are you going to do? Sleep all day? I've been up for two hours. <laughs> and of course, it's like six, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, fuck. Okay. So you get up. And, but she would have a great <laughs> breakfast for me, and uh, we would have uh, uh, instant coffee. She likes sunlight, and she'd watch the Today Show with Jane Polly, and mm-hmm. we would have a nice visit and um, in the morning before she was we like, to work. She was like retired at this point, right? She was li- living at home? Yeah. She was living by herself, and mm-hmm. Grandpa was gone by then. And she was smoking probably two and a half packs a day in Inside? the house. In the house, yeah. And that was sounds pretty harsh. Yeah, but that was just our experience back yeah. then. Something you dealt with, and um, I would go off to work. And uh, she had a car for me that I could use. I mean, you know, that's right. What was that yeah, car? The '69 LTD. The first summer. Yeah. And what was there? Wasn't there like a special feature about that car that was kind of interesting about the the way the uh, chairs? No, that was hers. I had a '69 LTD. It had a 390 in it, and it, it just. It, it, I think it had the. I think the the control panel was like yeah. kind of like weirdly uh, oriented towards the driver in like a circle or something. But oh, okay, uh, yeah, but, I know you're. But uh, that that thing was great. Big hunk of Detroit yeah. steel. Uh, but she had a '66 Chrysler New Yorker that had yeah. a 440 in it. It was huge. Yeah, it was huge. And yeah, the the it was bench seats and the um, the seat back for the front seat would fold down and turn the entire inside of the car into a queen size bed or king size. As far as I know, it was freaking huge. It's, that's such yeah. a trip. She probably got about, you know, 11 miles to the gallon. On a good day. <laughs> yeah. Was she cheap? Was what she was, cheap? like, was she like, she was, was she, a, she was a penny pincher? I mean, no, she came she from was, that she time. She didn't have right? any money. I mean, she was living on social security and she'd lost everything. Okay. So already. she naturally by default. She just, was... Yeah. But she was, she was careful. Mm-hmm. She never, um, 
I know this. I don't think she ever got shortchanged at the at uh, you know by a cashier. She's on it. She was on it. She would yeah. make them recount if there was a mistake. Um, she was she was very on top of that. Yeah. Yeah. And y'all, uh, you you got the you had the pleasure of playing cards with her a few times, right? Yeah, she's a great card player. She's like probably the best gin rummy player. She had a, like a um, photographic memory. She remembered every card that was laid down. Okay, so that was her advantage. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She she played gin. She taught me gin, canasta, uh, pinochle. Was she a was she a gracious winner or loser? Or? Yeah, she was. She was great. She was fun to play. If I beat her, I beat her. And then, um, but uh, but but I will tell you that she would suffer no fool who played her played their cards slowly. And uh, mm. you know, when it's your turn to play, she'd be wrapping her fingers or her knuckles on the table <laughs> constantly um, <laughs> until you went. And uh, she, I'm you know, I don't have all the stories straight, but she sure. because she was a. Uh, involved in politics and business back in the 40s and 50s and Through 60s grandpa. yeah, yeah and, and then she had all of her own friends that 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 she knew through him um i mean she was friends with eric cord and nelson rockefeller and a bunch of other people um she played a lot of cards with rich people mm-hmm. maybe took some money home mm-hmm. yeah. yeah that sounds like some interesting circles yep <laughs> shit well, Grandma Grandma Hazel, your grandma, my mom, she was a great card player too. Well, what did what did Grandma Hazel like to play? Uh, bridge. Would she still play bridge? You think? Now, no, I don't know. But she back in back in her day, she yeah, loved. she did. That was um, what uh, was kind of like the social glue of of um, the families that that we hung out with growing up. There was about a half a dozen or so families: the Bendixes, the Cunninghams, the Teahans, the Campbells, or the Fishers, and the Whites and the Rickstads, and I'm sure I'm missing a couple more. But um, we would get together once a month, and the kids would play while the parents, you know, just play, you know, fool around while the, mm-hmm. the parent, and they'd have a big potluck, and the parents would play uh, Duplicate Bridge. Duplicate. Uh, duplicate Bridge is where you have, a, you know, a series of, you know, uh, card tables, depending on how many people you have. Mm-hmm. And before everybody sits down, the cards are dealt in advance down dealt you know face down on the table Mm -hmm. and put into this you know special kind of like plastic holder that keeps Mm. a place for each person who's sitting at the table okay so that that way um after four people play that hand they can then rotate to the next table and play with the same cards so that the teams are that the distribution of cards is ultimately fair they keep track when they're played and they put it back and that way, uh, in duplicate bridge, uh, and when because you're competing to see who who can make the most out of the same hand. Okay. Okay. Like, hey, uh, Bud and Janine, they they got that. They got they had like nine spades between the two of them. You know, mm-hmm. they had the you know the top four. What did they make of that? Did they did they bid um, a slam or a baby slam, and did they make it? You know? huh. And so there was you know because there's in bridge, there are points for you know winning hands but yeah the, you you get most of your points from bidding but but by predicting mm-hmm. how many tricks you and your partner mm-hmm. are going to take mm-hmm. and being as close as possible to that without going over and so and so hazel played was did grandpa play too yeah grandpa jim yeah he was a good card player so they played together so they were kind of were they, they were the partners were yeah. they dominant in that in the yeah those well, groups hazel was pretty well you know janine bendix ended up becoming a master's bridge player with points and everything wow um uh, but yeah mine wow. was pretty good Mom learned bridge. 
uh, earlier when she was a Hollywood, the Hollywood reporter back in the 50s. And mm-hmm. she was um, renting a bungalow behind the home of some Eastern European character actor named Yvonne Tresalt, <laughs> who was friends with Vincent Price and Boris Karloff oh, wow. and, um, and Peter Lorre. Okay. And so they would play uh, bridge, these, yeah. these old actors, right? And they yeah. had money, you know. And uh, kind of like how we were talking earlier about how me and Sale and Cook and McNeil always play golf together. Mm-hmm. Lori and Karloff and Price and Tree Salt mm-hmm. used to play bridge together. Well, once in a while, one of these guys had a, a film to shoot or they were on location or they were in mm-hmm. trouble and they needed a fourth. So then they'd get Hazel... <laughs> who was a tenant to come in and play. Yeah. And and she was fine with that. But funny. these guys played for money mm-hmm. and she was making like about, you know, maybe 65 bucks a month or something. I mean, <laughs> she'd make whatever her paycheck was. It was like nothing. Cause she, yeah. it was the fifties and she was she's a woman a, and it was the, the news business. Yeah. And so whatever she would make, maybe it was, maybe it was more like 35 bucks a week or whatever she made. It wasn't mm-hmm. very much. And she, she said it was like, the you know uh, survival of the fittest. She had to quickly learn how to play well mm-hmm. in order to not lose uh, money. Mm-hmm. So that wow. that carried forward. Sounds like to, a really uh, good learning or like possibly good learning environment. Yeah, yeah. So she learned, and then she was pretty good um, when they played in Hawaii. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any other favorite stories of hers from that time of her life? From the fifties or from yeah, the 60s, from, from uh, before me or yeah, after before me? you. Um, well, I mean, like you know, everybody likes to talk about how um, shortly after Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier, she got to go do that with him and to do a story with him. She oh, wasn't really? on the first one, obviously, but um, you know, one of the ones, you know, one of the runs afterwards. This is flying. Yeah, she had a so, she had a pilot's license, Hazel. Um, oh, she did. Yeah, she did. Uh, one wow. one semester, cool. she uh, was that. not honest with her parents, and they thought <laughs> she was in college. Yeah. And instead, she dropped out and signed up for um, flying lessons and charged it to her dad. <laughs> and he found out afterwards. <laughs> Don't do that. Yeah, I won't do that. And um, <laughs> you're going to Davis next semester, right? Yeah, I'm going okay. to Davis starting yeah. Monday. Yeah. So she um, she did that, and so she had a pilot's license and. And she actually was a stewardess for a while for Bonanza Airlines, mm. which um, Bonanza. Bonanza Airlines operated um, in um, Nevada, California, mm-hmm. Mexico, Arizona. Mm-hmm. Anyways, um, and there was like a famous crash. Luckily, she wasn't on that one. But mm-hmm. um, she, so she got picked to uh, fly with Chuck Yeager, you know, on one of his, you know, you know, afterwards flights, she yeah. actually got to break, break the sound barrier. So that's kind of cool. Wow. So people like to talk about that. And then, um, she had like a encounter with, with Marilyn Monroe once when Monroe was like too hungover to come out right. of a, uh, an airplane. Mm-hmm. So, but, um, I think the most, one of the more interesting stories about mom in that time was when, um, it turned out that she was, I think the first reporter on the scene when Janet Lee's or Janet Lee's sixteen-year-old daughter um, killed Johnny Stompanato, the and mobster. Johnny Stompanato was kind of a wannabe mobster. Oh, okay. He was kind of like a 
guy who was going to, who was like, it was, I think maybe an actor, like not a very good actor and not very good at a lot of things. Mm-hmm. Maybe had some ties to organized crime or maybe not, maybe just his own version of crime. Okay. And Johnny Stampinato was actually kind of on the, on the way down. I mean, he, he, uh, Johnny, well, he died obviously, but Johnny Stampinato was with Janet Lee and, um, uh, anyways, uh, uh, how does grandma tie in? She was the first person on the scene outside the house when it happened. Like, you know, the, Hey, the reporters were all all around. And the, the, the reason why, um, uh, Janet Lee's daughter did that was because, uh, he was beating on the mom or maybe arguably hitting on the daughter. But the story is he was beating on the mom, Mm -hmm. Janet Lee, because she had just gotten back from being on, on uh, what happened was she had been on like a film location with Sean Connery Mm -hmm. and Johnny Stompanato got jealous Mm -hmm. of the time they spent together. So Johnny Stompanato went over to Scotland Mm -hmm. to challenge Sean Connery and Connery kicked his royal ass. Oh boy. And so he went <laughs> back to Hollywood and decided to take it out on on his um girlfriend. Oh, and then man. the girlfriend's daughter shot him to death, yeah. Shit. I think it was st- shot or stabbed. So yeah, so that, that was a hot story at the time. Very hot story at the time. Yeah, and Hazel was the, I think she might have gotten like the, you know, filed the, the first story on yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. That's um that's interesting. The other thing was um so I don't know what it was called back then, but uh, the equivalent, the functional equivalent of the uh, National Enquirer, mm-hmm. whatever it was called then, um, I'll just call it the Enquirer now. But the whatever the you know the you know the, what, what do you want to call gossip it? Gossip magazine, yeah, like gossip magazine, yeah, tabloid back then. Mm-hmm. The reason why Grandma Hazel got to have the job as the Hollywood reporter for the wire services was because there had been a scandal. Hmm. And the scandal was, you know, before she, you know, just before the scandal broke, there was basically two reporters, Hollywood reporters. One was writing all the dirty stuff, you know, talking about who was sleeping with who mm-hmm. and all that mm-hmm. kind of shit, you know, who's gay and all that. Um, and then the other one wrote the nice stories. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, at some point, some of these actors or actresses just got tired of all the scandal being written about them, some of which wasn't true. And uh, and they sued them for uh, slander or libel, and there was like this big trial. A group as a group. Yeah, were, I, you know, I don't know, one or two of them did, oh, but they're, you know, yeah. hey, we're tired of this, we're not going to take it. And so there was this trial, and you know, it, that in itself was a big story, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody's covering the, mm-hmm. you know, the the actors and actresses are finally standing up to the paparazzi and all this yeah, shit, yeah. right? And so they. Uh, they had, uh, for somehow or another, as part of the presentation, they had called, you know, as a witness, the, um, you know, the the person, the nice reporter who mm-hmm. had written the good things and, and, you know, this is what's true, you know, and that kind of thing. And the nice reporter had, had, had testified. And then they had s- subpoenaed the naughty reporter who had been writing all these lies Mm-hmm. And so then when the naughty reporter walked in the room and took the witness stand and everybody and everybody realized that it was an alias for the nice reporter mm-hmm. who had been basically writing both good stories and bad stories. Mm, okay. There was a huge scandal because obviously trust had been broken. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And um, so they needed to find somebody to be the Hollywood reporter. So they took this like 
nice young girl from Carson City <laughs> who was pretty fresh in the business. And uh, that's how Hazel got started as the um, Hollywood oh, wow. reporter. That's some serious like yeah attention all of a sudden. Yeah. So anyway, that was how she got that job and um, um, had her experiences there. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I I I need to ask her more about these things myself. I'd love to have a conversation with her about these things. Um, so if we actually track back a little bit to Santa Cruz for a second, you get to Santa Cruz where you live in on campus. Yep. And what was that like? What, what do you remember from like all of a sudden being on your own and you're like, am I free? Like, did you have that? Like, did it take a minute for it to, well, dorm to seven, get used to I it? I was on the second floor of dorm seven at, at <laughs> Stevenson college and uh, at Santa Cruz and, uh, they, uh, our dorm had a, uh, I was on the co-ed floor mm-hmm. and that meant that we had co-ed bathrooms. Mm-hmm. And so getting used to the idea that, um, you're squatting in a stall and that somebody next to you that's doing the same thing, making a bunch of noises mm-hmm. and grunting is of the uh, opposite sex. That was a hard thing to get used yeah, to. Yeah. I imagine it was very hard. Yeah, Yeah. And then, um, and then the showers were, uh, they, they weren't locked. They were just like these like, uh, curtains, indivi- individual showers. Mm-hmm. And so, um, uh, I remember, uh, at some point early in the school year, I was, uh, um, taking a shower, just doing <laughs> mine and my own business. And yeah. damn, if this girl that I kind of liked just kind of walked in on me and opened it, yeah. you know, suddenly I was like, Oh shit. Oh shit. You know, yeah, yeah, covered yeah. up, you know, she was embarrassed. I was embarrassed. Mm-hmm. You know? And then, um, you know, forgot about it. And then. Just, you know, as luck would have it, near the end of the school year, uh, the tables were turned and I accidentally did the same thing to her. And we laughed about it afterwards. But you know, it's like, oh, shit. You know? but, yeah, these yeah, co-ed bathrooms nice. are, yeah, we're, um, we're, a, uh, we're, we're an adventure. Yeah, that's, a, that's interesting. Did yeah. you, I'm wondering, did you um, feel, did you appreciate your new independence being on your own in college? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely liked having my own space and, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, making new friends and doing things, uh, you know, on my terms. Sure. Mm-hmm. And then you inevitably decided that you would, that Berkeley or you, that going to another school might be a better fit and you ended up at Berkeley and how did that go for you? Uh, well, yeah, well, I was, we were just parting our asses off and I was afraid <laughs> that I'd never make it out of college if I stayed there. So yeah, I decided to transfer out. Were there some experiences that really like shook you up or opened your eyes or were you just kind of, things were adding up slowly, well, we were, you know, doing a lot of, um, you know, rec, you know, engaging in recreational drug use, and <laughs> drinking and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, I think I just was looking for something else. I had, a, you know, I had originally thought about going to Berkeley and had gotten into Berkeley and, mm-hmm. and then kind of chickened out. I thought it was too big of a city. And, um, so really? I went to Santa Cruz uh, part of it was also I didn't have a car, and uh, living in a remote campus like Santa Cruz without a car was kind of limiting. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, hey, I'll transfer to Berkeley where it's more urban and mm-hmm. um, and just more of a challenge. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, the uh, I was interested in philosophy, and the uh, philosophy department uh, there was great, and so I transferred in to um, uh, get involved in that, that that study. Yeah, what classes? stick out in your memory from that time that were like from Santa Cruz or Berkeley? Uh, from Berkeley from the philosophy. From Berkeley? Uh, well, John Searle, who, 
Oh, we're talking professors? Yeah, John Searle, uh, you know, the philosophy of language. I thought he um, he made me um, ask a lot of questions. I thought Hubert Dreyfus's uh, uh, classes on, um, er, which was early uh, cognitive science stuff, you know, how to, how to make a, can a computer think like a person and how do you make it do mm. that? And he was pretty, uh, um, pretty early on, on that. Um, did that remind you of any of the sci-fi stuff or iRobot stuff that you were, uh, I don't learning know. about then? I, no, because, I, because now it's kind of becoming more and more talked about the artificial intelligence. And that's why I ask. I, I don't know. I think, um, it was all really, really hard. Really? And I was not making it any easier for myself because I was a purist and I felt like I should only read the text yeah, and not go to the secondary sources and, mm-hmm. and get someone else's interpretation that I wanted mm-hmm. my own interpretation. Now looking back on it, um, what's wrong with doing both? Mm-hmm. But, um, okay. you know, so I would come to class, uh, not as equipped as some of my classmates who were, uh, had the benefit of of what the teacher was probably going to say mm-hmm. already, but me, I was just going purely on you know my interpretation and what it meant to me. Mm-hmm. And so now and again, I'd find myself a little bit in no man's land in class. But um, I have to say that because it, um, the interpretations were my own, that um, that I got appreciation from um, from the teachers, and in the end, it worked out pretty good. Mm-hmm. It was just a little bit harder. Mm-hmm. And so you were in Berkeley in the very like in the early eighties. What was what was Berkeley like back then? Um, there's a lot of street people. Mm-hmm. Uh, things I remember about Berkeley are a Blondie's Pizza, big slice of pizza, and a Coke for a dollar yeah, and a quarter. We've been there. Yeah, yeah, that was great. Oh, you said for a quarter? For a dollar and a quarter. Oh, okay. Um, you get a slice of pizza for a dollar or a yeah. Coke for 50 cents and then the two of them for a dollar and a quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, there were uh, a couple of there, – there were always some different people kind of doing entertaining for you know street entertainers for uh, donations and tips on campus and off campus. On campus, oh, really? there, was, uh, there was this one guy or two guys that had a um, – they would roll a piano, a stand-up upright piano, and do Beatles songs together and take okay. turns playing and singing mm-hmm. and doing the harmonies. Those and these weren't good. students. These were – I don't know what they were, but they were guys. younger guys. They were probably in their early 20s. Yeah. So I don't know what they were doing, but mm-hmm. they were coming out and playing. They were pretty good. I like that. Um, there was the polka dot dude. This yeah. dude was dressed like kind of like a circus clown, but he was like – wore this tall dude with like – polka dot hat and matching polka dot jumpsuit <laughs> and that was the shit and he would just be walking around you're like what the hell and then every once in a while because i would pay attention i'm like wondering who is this guy every once in a while he'd walk over to like a hedge mm-hmm. and he'd reach down and he'd find like a um a stick with notches on it mm-hmm. and he would go put a notch on it and then go put it back <laughs> whoa yeah i was like what the hell is this Perplexing, guy doing? Yeah. keeping track of something. So um, I don't know exactly what the polka dot dude was up to, but that guy <laughs> stuck in my mind. Um, oh, man. Yeah. Um, it was a, you know, a busy campus. There were like 30,000 kids there. So it's, it was really easy to get lost mm-hmm. in there and feel, you know, alone in a crowd there. Yeah. What was the social scene like what was for you? For me, it was different because I wasn't in the dorms. I didn't have like a, a, in an apartment. a foundation of friends that, 
that I had developed in the dorms or anything like mm-hmm. that. And I made my friends through um, classes that I went to. I lived mm-hmm. off campus. I took BART in. I knew that going in that I didn't know anybody. Mm-hmm. And then I wanted that I, that I knew that if I was going to be a commuter, mm-hmm. that I was going to have to force myself to be on campus as early and as often as possible. So I found a class that was 8.30 to 9.30, Monday through Friday. Oh, shit. And I took that class, which wow. turned out to be um, uh, Russian 1. Oh, you really? Yeah, so I took a Slavic 1. And, I took, and this is coming from taking French in high school. So yeah, so you, I had no... Yeah, yeah, but you I mean, knew, I knew it was possible. You know how to learn a language a little bit. My dad spoke Russian, so I oh, thought, okay. well, whatever, I could do that. But also, I just thought, well, I'm just going to take this just to, just to get myself on campus every day. And um, then I found out one of those remember we were talking about how there are some kids that get ahead and others that don't like they mm-hmm. read ahead or they um or they uh uh are taking a class that maybe they already knew some of the material uh i, f- I found out that you know three-fourths of the kids in the class i was in that i was competing against <laughs> had already taken russian mm-hmm. in like high school mm-hmm. or or it was spoken in the house and they're going for the easy a and mm-hmm. i was like fucking learning it on my own mm-hmm. so it was pretty tough i remember I, I think i got like a c and i was like really bummed out about it mm-hmm. about getting a c yeah russian one had no idea yeah yeah hey, getting a taste uh, of grandpa's many languages he spoke six languages roughly something like that yeah mm-hmm. he spoke a lot of languages yeah, he's a yeah. colorful guy. We'll talk more about him sometime. Yeah. Right on. So, Berkeley. You It sounds like you enjoyed your time there. Yeah. Yeah, I had fun. You know, I made a few friends, and we had a good time. And um, we, uh, you know, I was busy. I was a, you know, I was a serious student at that point. I did have fun. Mm-hmm. I did play around. But um, school was, um, you know, was, was very important to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've generally been pretty competitive in school for a long time, or you know, from yeah. s- starting in high school to some respect, from my understanding. Yeah, just you know, you want to try to do your best. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that. I was recently talking to um, Fred, Fred Babich over at the Real Pie Company that I, down the street, and. Uh, he was telling me how all, cause he's had such an interesting background, all sorts of, you know, being in a, in a band that, you know, almost, you know, almost went places and, uh, being in, in different industries and talking about how he, cause he worked and I was amazed at the, the amount of hours he's working at the, the shop right now. He's working probably 12 hours a week, 12 hours a day, seven days a week or 14 hours a day, seven days a week. And he uh, said, yeah, just putting a hundred percent into everything each project and then it kind of we started talking about how like that becomes a skill almost like really pouring yourself into something it becomes like a muscle or a skill that you develop and that just fascinated me i really like appreciated that it motivated me if anything restaurant works like that you you, you, there's there's no room for somebody who's sitting you know Mm -hmm. if you have a free moment you need to find something to polish or refill or clean or move or whatever Mm -hmm. on a side note i'm wondering earlier we were talking about when we were having a beer before this you're you're talking about some people having a talent for saying something with as less words or as little words as possible and i'm wondering because i chose to not talk about that as much then because i wanted to bring it up now 
And I know that's always been a theme whenever you would try to teach me about writing or editing growing up. And I'm wondering, like, where does that come from and why do you value it so much? Um, Mark Messer. Who's that? So, um, he was my, um, my, I think I had him as a, my English teacher for probably at least two or three out of the four years I was in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he was my, was he my European studies teacher and maybe Asian studies and definitely my English composition class in my senior year. I hated his guts. I thought he, uh, <laughs> engaged in, uh, some shameless favoritism towards the cute girls in the class, oh, or at least was flirting hard. with them. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and was arbitrary. But with that said, he was a son of a bitch <laughs> that, uh, really worked me over in terms of editing my writing. Um, and so I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. You know, my dad edited my writing too, and, and was, was kinder about, about ripping me apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, but, uh, but, but what Messer, Messer went to Eton, uh, he grew up in England and, uh, he was a English, you know, English schoolboys. uh, they, uh, uh, learned a, a writing practice called Precy, which is a French mm. word for precise. And, um, anyway, Precy, I'm not sure if it comes from France or if it's an English thing named after France, but Precy is a writing exercise where, um, the student is given a, a pre-written text of a certain number of words, let's say 300 words. Mm-hmm. And then their job, the student's job, is to reduce the text to one-third of its original word count without losing any meaning. Mm-hmm. And so that's it's, it. There, and there's an art to it. You, if you um, think about it and you have command of the language and uh, you can you can reduce... Um, any text to mm-hmm. a third of the words used by the, the original writer without um, any meaningful, um, you know, deviation from what the mm-hmm. writer's, uh, you know, uh, uh, intended meaning was. Right, what do you think that does for the reader? Uh, well, I can tell you that um, it's something that good writers do anyway. Good writers write and rewrite and edit and, and, uh, uh, when when uh, writing is compact, and it's more powerful, and it's more interesting. Their reader's attention is retained, and uh, you know if you can say in one paragraph what someone else will take three paragraphs, then you have a much better chance of of what you're saying resonating and being retained by the reader. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's I. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't prepared to embrace that for a long time, and now I'm like slowly emerging into acknowledging the the work it takes to develop the skill of writing, and that seems to be a very helpful tool or mindset to have. Well, it's that's that's something that comes with time. I probably was in the same place as you when I was your age. I, I, uh, you know, being a, an egotistical young man, I'm not saying you are, but I was. Um, <laughs> no, I hear you. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I was, I guess, uh, uh, captured or captivated by the fantasy of having 
such you know, unique talent that the rules didn't necessarily apply to me, that I could just sit down and write something in one setting and it was going to be better than anything, anything else. Mm. And um, I learned over time that there's a value to writing and rewriting and editing. And I learned that over time. And, and uh, at first, I looked at it as, oh, I don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, like, oh, i got to sweep the floor kind of thing. Yeah. But then, over time, I began to find joy in the process. Mm. And I remember in 1980, I was reading an article in Time Magazine. Um, once they would, they would always be, you know, Time Magazine was big magazine back then. And, you know, they were, they were writing about politics and current events and some history and, you know, important things like that. Mm. But Time Magazine always had one page near the back devoted to sports and i'm i'm a sports fan always have been you mm-hmm. know if i wasn't a lawyer i would have become a sports writer or mm-hmm. a sports announcer that mm-hmm. was what i wanted to be a sports journalist when you were a kid you yeah ever since i was a little kid i wanted to be a sports journalist mm-hmm. and instead i've just always just been a fan of sports and kept up on it and mm-hmm. sports writing um so i remember reading this one pager in the back of a time magazine um about Chuck Knoll. Now, Chuck Knoll was the um, coach of the Pittsburgh Steelers, and they had just won their fourth Super Bowl in like six years or seven years. Uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers, they beat the Rams in January of 1980. Mm-hmm. So this article probably came out in February of 1980. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> Chuck Knoll is known for a couple of things. So first of all, he was the he was the next great NFL coach that came along after Vince Lombardi. People can talk about um, some of the other coaches that were big names like uh, Tom Landry and all that and, and, and Bud Grant. But, but truly, um, Chuck Knoll was because Chuck Knoll won four Super Bowls in like six years or seven years, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, before that, Lombardi had won multiple NFL championships. Now, you know, Lombardi was the coach of the Green Bay Packers Mm -hmm. in the 50s and 60s. Lombardi was known for saying something that you've heard before. He was known for the expression, winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. Mm -hmm. And there are positive and negative feelings attached to that kind of mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, But, you know, people who believe that the ends justify the means were like, yeah, winning's everything. But, of course, in the 60s and 70s, folks were beginning to t- re-examine the whole notion of ends justifying the means. And process became important. Mm-hmm. Um, and how we treat one another became important. Mm-hmm. So what was that article? Is that well, what Chuck that article Noel, about? Chuck Knoll rejected uh, Lombardi's view. Mm-hmm. And he said, the joy is not in the winning, it's in the doing. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting about Chuck Noll, Chuck Noll embraced preparation and got his players to embrace preparation, practice, studying your opponent, getting ready for the next match. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and he applied it not just in football, which he was obviously a great coach. He was a gourmet chef, a value that I share. And he loved not just eating the meal, but preparing the meal, mm. which is something I like to do. And that's one of my favorite things I like to do with um, 
uh, with Blea is uh, hanging out and uh, and preparing a meal and the conversation mm-hmm. and the work and the the, mm-hmm. st- the you know all the things that go into it. Did you now was your in your love of that love affair with the process of food was before this article or did oh, that for sure yeah that, that it was a common yeah you know I was a latchkey kid my both my parents worked they mm-hmm. um, and I was the oldest of three boys and so. Yeah. Um, in, um, uh, I was responsible for making sure that my brother, that I and my brothers had breakfast Yeah. and, and then, um, and then as I got older, I was responsible for making sure that, um, dinner, you know, the, the, the elements of dinner were, were commenced, you know, like make the rice, uh, pull the meat out of the freezer, thaw it out, get the vegetables, you know, we had frozen yeah. vegetables, like get it all organized. Mm-hmm. And then, then it probably starting around, you know. I don't know, sixth grade or seventh grade, then I, w- I was given the responsibility to make dinner mm-hmm. so that when mom and dad got home, there was meal for all of us. Mm-hmm. So that's when I started cooking, you know, for myself pretty young. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You've been speaking, you were speaking to the process and talking about the, the joys and the doing. And that really inspires me because I find it, that's something that I work on actively. And that, and that falls right in line with a lot of the stuff I'm working on lately, which is like mindfulness, presence, et cetera, you know? And I'm, I'm wondering, I guess, like, what is your, you know, where have you applied that or where have, yeah. Like what's your relationship with that? The joys and the doing. So you've said cooking, writing, you've embraced that. Practicing golf. Golf. Yeah. yeah. Is it, what's that experience? Is it, is it a, is it having a patience for yourself or is it like a curiosity in the process? Well, I don't know. I don't know. It, it's just something that you do. I mean, if you want to get better, mm-hmm. if you want the product to be better, if you want to play better, mm-hmm. if you want to perform better than practice or at least preparation, mm-hmm. you know, when, um, when I first started practicing as a lawyer, um, I had, um, I was pretty confident in my ability to speak extemporaneously uh, because I had a job for a couple of years between college and law school going door to door. And I had learned how to uh, communicate with people who I, you know, I needed to get them to make a decision on, you know, I'm trying to get them to make a donation or support the cause I was working for. And, and uh, you know, you got to learn people, you have to, you have to assess people, you have to learn how to talk to them. You have to learn how to get your point across to them quickly mm-hmm. and uh, and then shut up once they've made a decision one way or the other. And shut up if they decided to support you and move on and extricate yourself quickly if, if, if you can see that it's going the other direction. And um, those experiences, I think, really helped me as a young lawyer have confidence to be able to uh, uh, assess what's going on in the courtroom and communicate and compete with people that had more experience than I did as a lawyer. Hmm. But and but with that said, I didn't value the preparation, the writing, the doing the homework ahead of time mm-hmm. that could have made uh, me more successful. And so, you know, I thought it was I thought it was cool that I you know I didn't really you know that I could kind of tap dance my way through situations without being completely prepared mm-hmm. and the ego part of me would kick in and go, Oh yeah, I can, you know, I can, 
I can do whatever I I can do whatever I need to do to get through. And and so for that reason, when I was a young lawyer, I I, w- I wouldn't plan ahead. I wouldn't look to see what do I have going on next week. I'd look at my calendar and see what do I have today. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'd find myself in a situation like, oh shit. I should have filed the. I should have filed a X Y Z brief for mm-hmm. this thing. I could have done this. I didn't do that. God mm-hmm. damn it! And then I found myself behind the eight ball, and then I'd, you know, feel the pressure and be under the gun to, to create a positive result um, without having all of the necessary tools. And 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 you know what? I did okay uh, until some of the some of the results that I uh, was obtaining um, that I obtained ended up getting. Um, changed by mm-hmm. appellate courts afterwards so you so you essentially have you you became easily like reliant on thinking or acting on the fly to an extent yeah or I mean, in you know, improvisation yeah. we relied on um commun- ability to communicate and mm-hmm. uh and to deal with things on the fly and to and to convince somebody mm-hmm. in person and those are all great tools mm-hmm. when not misused um, but what I missed out on was, hey, you know, with just a little bit of extra work in advance, mm-hmm. I could have had all my paperwork bases covered. Mm-hmm. And then I could make it my win stick on appeal. And I had a bunch of cases get sent back on appeal because, mm-hmm. you know, the the appellate courts would look at the transcript and go, what? Why? Why did they? Why did they rule in his favor? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, you could think <laughs> it's all cute, but yeah. it was stupid when all I had to do yeah. was a little bit of work. And then. As time has passed and um, my responsibilities as a lawyer, which are to my client first and my, you know, my, you know, the, the integrity of the profession mm-hmm. second, and then um, the, uh, the bringing along of the other lawyers in the office that I'm working with now who are, um, you know, choosing to come learn their craft here, mm-hmm. um, you know, that comes next. And. And, uh, you know, you have all these responsibilities and, mm-hmm. you know, I can't, I can't screw around anymore. I got to, mm-hmm. you know, I got to do it right. They expect more, you know I mean? It's like you, in some ways the job is easier because I know what it's supposed to look like. I know what, it, yeah. uh, I know what, how, what I'm, you know, what, what things are supposed to look like, mm-hmm. but in other ways it's harder because you get tempted to, uh, to push the envelope and to take positions on the edge that are within the bounds of the law, mm. but that might require a whole lot of scrambling to make stick if the other side stands mm-hmm. up to you. You know, like mm-hmm. this year has been a good example of that where, you know, I don't know what I was thinking six months ago, but I must have been feeling pretty frisky because <laughs> I picked a bunch of fights with people and then um, I couldn't palm them off onto others. Mm-hmm. I had to finish them off myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's where um, that when you... When you prepare and you plan and you do all this footwork mm-hmm. with with a game plan in hand, mm-hmm. you create an incredible amount of pressure on the other side you know, mm-hmm. because you know you never know when you might run into some joker that's just like I used to be mm-hmm. that's planning on just you know screwing around and cutting some corners and tap dancing mm-hmm. and I know how to deal with I know how to deal with the guy mm-hmm. I used to be mm-hmm. prepare plan take yeah. territory well, it sounds like you learn from learn lessons from those experiences because it has helped facilitate or allow you to be in the position that you are now or thrive in more of a or evolve into a more managerial capacity or 
uh, more responsible just in like the way you pick your battles or pick the way you conduct those battles. Um, but it still sounds like there's also that urge for uh, that ambition or experimentation that uh, has led you to situations where, like you said, you were feeling frisky. You must, must have been, have been, been feeling, feeling frisky, frisky. because yeah. I'm like, damn, I took a lot of I took a lot of edge positions. Yeah, all within the bounds, all that made sense for the case, but mm-hmm. would would require a lot of scrambling and a lot of work to make them stick. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and right on, cool. That's yeah, fun. Yeah, that's cool. I feel like maybe we've we've uh, we've explored a pretty good amount, and I think we we could both use a good night's sleep and head home. All right. Um, but thanks for taking a moment to let me pick your brain a little bit and get a little bit of your story down. Okay. Until the next time. Cool, man. Thank you. Aloha.